good morning. It's a delight to gather together, isn't it, around the Word of God as we have opportunity to open it for the last time corporately together for 2019. Can you believe that? I can't believe that. That's pretty incredible. Well, today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, Luke chapter 1, so if you'd like to turn there, uh, that is a good fitting as a beginning and as an end, a beginning in that it recognizes Jesus Christ's birth, but it also looks to the end of Jesus Christ's birth, the purpose. And so it is a good fitting passage for us to consider this morning. The setting of this part of Luke's narrative is just prior to the birth of Jesus Christ. So Jesus hasn't been born yet. That's Luke chapter 2, as many of you are aware. And just after the birth of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, using a little theological imagination here, I think is maybe, at, if nothing else, very close to his son, if not holding John the Baptist. And he's making a promise. Now, you heard Pastor Tim make a promise a few Sundays ago, and it was just alluded to with the truffles. And Mrs. Batting and all her ladies made so many cookies for our Christmas program that we decided not to hand them out that Sunday, but we said we better hand them out because we said so very publicly. This morning I was reminded of a promise that I made to my daughter. Stella and I were driving in the car with our family. We were driving, and, and every once in a while on a Sunday for a very special treat, really to, to get the teenagers to come to my Sunday school class, we buy donuts. Uh, see, it works. It works for the life in the middle. Whoever's in charge of the life in the middle class, Rick wants you to know it works for the life in the middle class too. But we go to Dunkin' Donuts and in, in an effort to try to get some protein in the children, we also get one of those egg, bacon, cheese, croissant sandwiches that they have. They're, they're quite good. Well, just, in the, I don't even think it was breakfast time. Just in the, ma in the middle of the, uh, of the day, we're driving, and Stella's like, Daddy, you know what I want? I said, no, sweetie. What do you want? And then she started describing it, and she didn't know egg, bacon, cheese, croissant, and, and so, you mean the sandwich from the donut place? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, we'll get one on Sunday as a special treat. And I totally forgot this morning. But my wife remembered. And we make promises, don't we? Zacharias is holding his son, and he's making a promise. You know, as a dad, I want to keep the promises that I make. Right? As parents, that's our goal. Right? We want them, we want our children or those who we love to know that what I say I mean, and you can trust me. Right? And, and maybe as a parent, you have made a promise. I remember one time uh, saying, oh yeah, we'll get that at the store. And I don't even remember what it was, but I remember that the store didn't have it. And so what did I do? Look at my little daughter who said, Daddy, you said we were going to get this. And say, sorry, sweetie, they're all out. No, we ended up going across town, you know, three hours later. And of course, it's way more expensive at that other store that's always much busier just to get what I said we would get. And Zacharias is giving us a promise here. But my friends, it's no ordinary promise. It's no mere human one that Zacharias 
gives us. It is by the Holy Spirit and is about the Savior of the world. So page down to chapter 1, verse 67 of Luke. And really, we're, we're looking at this passage, this promise, and we're asking the question this morning, I think Luke answers the question this morning, how sure can we be of Jesus' ability to save us from our sins? How sure can we be that Jesus, the babe in the manger, can save us from our sins? It's a necessary question, isn't it? And for those of you in this room this morning under the sound of my voice who doubt, who are skeptic, skeptical of this, of this babe in a manger, or who reject, for a few moments I want us to consider what the Bible says about the ability of Jesus and only Jesus to save you from your sins. And for those of us who have either long or recently trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior, this is a necessary and adequate reminder for us to orient our entire life around this babe in a manger because he one day will come as King of Kings and so we're to persevere and look for him. But before Christ is even born, Zacharias, I think, has a promise that answers this question, can we trust in Jesus to save us from our sins? And the answer, my friends, is a resounding yes, isn't it? Zacharias says so, but the reason is profoundly simple this morning. It is merely because God himself says that we can trust in Jesus. That is our guarantee. That God's word is enough. And that what God promises will always come true. And so perhaps maybe in your life, as I have had, well-meaning people promise me things that they either should never have promised me or couldn't themselves keep. God himself, when he, what he says, he will do, won't he? And you know that this is true if you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior. And so we will see three reasons this morning in Luke chapter 1, why we can trust in God's promise that the babe and the major can save us from our sins. Are you ready? The first reason is God's word is a promise from mercy. So let's begin reading in verse 67. God's word is a promise of mercy. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit. His father, that, that, that being John the Baptist, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied this word can mean preach, it can mean proclaim, and it can mean to tell the future in a certain way. And that is certainly the case here. Zacharias was prophesying, he was prophesying, he was foretelling, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant. And has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. 
You see, God's promise is a promise for mercy. In verses 67 through 30, uh, excuse me, 67, 67 through 71, tell us so. And first of all, it tells us that God's promise is a promise of mercy because God has a continued relationship with us. His continued relationship demonstrates, my friends, the vast amount of mercy given, doesn't it? Do you deserve a relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? With the God of Heaven? I don't. Look at verse 67. This is 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has, what? Visited us. This is a relationship that has a purpose behind it. God's mercy is one demonstrated through his relationship, and his relationship has an intense purpose behind getting to know you and getting to know me. He has visited us. This is no ordinary visit. This is really Luke's Emmanuel. You know, Matthew reminds us that Jesus is Emmanuel, the God with us. This is Luke's Emmanuel. He says, God has visited us. It's no ordinary visit. Some of you are visitors, staying in homes this Christmas. Some of you, no doubt, have had visitors stay in, in your home this Christmas. And the purpose was probably primarily one of celebration, right? Getting around, having appetizers, having food, opening presents, enjoying each other's company. But as a youth pastor, we, we take a mission trip with, with the youth once or twice a year. And we have a purpose, an intention behind our visit. We don't go to parties or to sightsee, though we probably do those things very naturally well when we go. But we go with a purpose. My mother-in-law visits us with a purpose every time Sharla has a baby. And it's a great help to have her stay and to help Sharla and to help me and to help the baby. Some of you have been recipients of that kind of intentional, purposeful visit. My friends, God visits us with that kind of intention, with that kind of purpose to be a help, just the kind of help that you and I need. He visits us, and he does so in his mercy to redeem us. His relationship is one of purpose. His relationship is one of promise. Look at the biting nature of his merciful promise. He says in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. You know, the very fact that God identifies as someone else's is an astounding thought, isn't it? Think about that. God of Israel. Now take all that you know about Israel and their stubbornness and their failure and their murmuring and their wickedness and take everything you know about God. Complete opposite. And yet God 
identifies as his peoples. He is the God of Israel. He is faithful. You know, the blatancy of Israel's failures are only overshadowed by the relentlessness of God's mercy. It's a powerful thing. It's a powerful understanding when you know that the God of heaven is yours and you are his. And that isn't because of your doing, is it? It isn't because of your standing, of your goodness, of your righteousness, of your holiness, of your efforts, of your work. It is only because of the merciful, tender, loving, compassionate God who loves you and me to no end and who has given us Jesus Christ. So he is ours. Look at verse 68. The Lord God of Israel, he has visited us and accomplished the redemption for his people here, speaking of specifically Israel, and we know that that opens up to us as the church. He has raised up a horn of salvation, verse 69, for us. Luke goes on to emphasize the personal reality that is brought to us in a relationship because of the mercy of our God. So he has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation. You know, I was just, <clears throat> excuse me, I was just in Wyoming for a wedding. I don't think I see them here. I don't <clears throat> know if they're in town or not yet. But Brandon actually did get married. It's true, Brandon Teske. For those of you who didn't know that he was <clears throat> having, a, having an opportunity to get married, and uh, they don't make um, the scenery quite the same out there. It was beautiful. But you know what else they don't make the same out there is the deer. Uh, we saw, I saw tons of deer, and uh, these deer were huge, and they, they, they were, I think the smallest point I saw was a 10-point deer. And uh, for those of you who don't know, just think of you know the biggest reindeer antlers you've ever seen and and th this is the this is the kind of deer out there they're huge they're powerful things and everyone's like oh yeah you know you don't want to drive at night and i thought here it was because of the terrain you know the mountains black ice snow all kinds of stuff and it has nothing to do with the terrain they're used to that but it has everything to do with running into deer or deer running into you doesn't matter what you're driving if you run into one of those things with the horns that they have and the and the amount of mass that they carry and apparently you know people out there they actually eat deer and elk for you know like for actually for food right we kind of do it here and have fun and all these kind of things this is their grocery shopping out there it's incredible and apparently a a decent sized deer is is a good find but then you get into elk, and it's like 10 deer. So you need like 10 freezers when, when, you, when you catch an elk. But my point is, you don't want to run into these things. They are powerful beasts. They will do damage to you, let alone your vehicle. 
Horns are very graphic, very pictorial things that demonstrate power. I had a little, little buck run through our yard the other day. I wasn't nearly as awe-inspired <laughs> with his, you know, two little things going up in the air. It was nothing. I was ready to get Jackson, our dog, and let him chase him out of my apple trees. You know, the Bible talks about Jesus as the horn of our salvation in the Psalms. It's a very powerful picture. Here, God raises up the horn of salvation for us. A picture of power and of might and of authority. Can I just for a second ask you to consider that that picture also has a counterfeit? You know, Daniel chapter 7, I believe it is, talks about the little horn of power. Later on, as we go through Scripture, we understand that that is the Antichrist. There are, there are things competing for power. There are things competing for our allegiance to ultimate power, Jesus Christ. And so as we see the, the merciful relationship that we have in Jesus Christ, I want us to take a second and just consider what potentially are some other horns, I won't call it a little horn, that's a formal title, but what potentially are some other horns in your life vying for authority and power and attention outside of Jesus Christ? Because you and I, my friend, have a merciful relationship, if you know Jesus is your Savior, with the one who holds all the power. One day, all those who claim to have counterfeit power will be cast aside and cast into forever the lake of fire. And all those who follow the one who has been raised up, the horn of salvation, will worship him forever. So we have a merciful relationship that's personal but it's also demonstrated through God's actions, through his works in our lives. Consider this. Verse 69, he raised up. It's really, it's really a continuation from verse 68 where we say, where Luke says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. You see that there in verse 68? For he has visited us in verse 69, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. See, God is the one who raises up our salvation. He is the one who elevates his servant. You know, there's some theological irony in this picture of God raising up our salvation, Jesus Christ, because the faithful servant in Isaiah is nonetheless the suffering servant, isn't he? He's also raised up, that is, Jesus raised up above all peoples and all nations, but he's also raised up on the cross for our sins, is he not? He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, yet he is also 
the mocked one, the king of Jews, the one who was spat on. And is it not a remarkable demonstration of God's mercy that he raises up his son personally for you when you did not deserve it, personally for me when he was mocked, when he was beaten, when he was scorned. He elevates his servant and he also vindicates his people. He vindicates his people. Look at verse 71. We'll begin as verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. You see, my friends, Luke wants us to understand that God and his mercy is acting on our behalf when we totally do not deserve it. And he does so by giving us salvation from our enemies. You know what's interesting? Oftentimes the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what the enemies are. Sometimes in the Old Testament they do. Sometimes in the Old Testament they don't. Sometimes in the New Testament it's very generic. Salvation from our enemies. The point isn't do we have enemies because if we're in Jesus Christ we know that there's a plethora of spiritual warfare going on. We know that we wrestle with with our own sin and our own flesh. But the point isn't, what kind of enemy do you have this morning? Because your enemy is certain, right? That's not the point. The point is, what kind of grip does the enemy have on us? Verse 71 says, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. The hand of all who hate us. The enemy is pictured as someone who has a grip, as someone who has a stronghold, as someone who, who has a choke on you. And yet what is the ultimate reality of those who in God's mercy have a relationship with him? It's not about who the enemy is. It's about what God will do with our enemies. Verse 71 says that there is salvation, there is deliverance from our enemies. And it's a remarkable thing. It is a remarkable thing that we are delivered from the hand of all those who hate us. It speaks of God's power and God's ability, regardless of how we feel in the moment, regardless of what we think the enemy has on us that God will deliver us in his mercy. And so, for some of us, we are going through incredible things. Know that God, in his mercy, will deliver you. He has promised it to be so. He has promised it to be so. You know, it also reveals that God... uh, our relationship with him reveals that God has a continued revelation. A continued revelation. He, hasn't, he isn't silent. He's given us his word, and in his word, he's given us 
a tremendous amount of mercy. Look at verses 72 and 73. Zacharias is, I believe, in my theological imagination, holding John the Baptist, speaking of the one who will come, the Savior of the world, Jesus. And he says, verse 72, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his covenant, his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. You know, we're reminded of God's tremendous mercy towards us because of the promises that God has continued to give to his people. Did not God demonstrate himself faithful and true to his word to his people Israel? Think for a second about the holy covenants. There's two that Zacharias mentions here by name. The Abrahamic covenant in verse 73 and the Davidic covenant in verse 69. But there's one that I believe is mentioned without name in this passage. And that is the new covenant. The covenant that really fulfills and replaces the Mosaic covenant according to Hebrews chapter 8. So consider for a second verse 68 where we're told that God promised to be their God and he to be his people. That's a new covenant promise. God promised to raise up the house of David forever. Yes, it is a Davidic covenant, but also is a renewal of the, of the new covenant in verse 69. In verse 71, God promised to save their enemies, for, for our enemies forever. And that is a uh, new covenant promise in verse 71. In verse 74, God said that they would serve him without fear. That is a new covenant promise. In verse 75, that they would serve him in holiness and in righteousness. In verse 77, that they would have knowledge and forgiveness of sins. In verse 78, that Jesus would be the light. All these are promises that God has made in his mercy. You know, what's true about the new covenant is it's, it's not very new. It's just newer than the old covenant. What do I mean by that? Well, pretty much right out of the gate, after God gave the Mosaic covenant in Deuteronomy, right out of the gate, God alludes to the fact that a new covenant is necessary because his covenant with them will be broken by them. Not by him, but by them. And so all of Scripture then starts to point to a new and sure covenant, a covenant that is based on the person and on the work of Jesus Christ. And it is a covenant, my friends, of mercy. And so in summary, how can we be sure of Jesus' ability to save us from our sins? This first portion is that God, in his promises, birthed out his promises through mercy. Not because of us, but really despite of us, God has promised his promises. And not only has God given us a promise of, from mercy, but God has also promised to transform us. And so his promise is based in mercy, and his promise in, is based 
and transformation. And that is the next quality of his promise that we'll see. For a moment, I want you to, to kind of look around a little bit. And look at those in this room. And for those of you in this room that have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, think about the reality that this is a promise that is transforming in its work. So look around and consider how Jesus Christ has transformed those in this room. Now, when you look around, don't look for perfection in this room. You won't find it. You won't find perfection. But you will find Jesus transforming hearts. And my friends, that is the proof that God's promise is real. You're the proof. You're the proof. His church is the proof. My friend, think for a moment, where would you be right now without Jesus and his transforming work in your heart? I don't dare go there long for myself. And so God's word is a tremendous testimony to the promise that transforms. We see that in verses 74 and 75. Zechariah says, to grant us, verse 74, that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You know, God transforms our position. He transforms our position. Here we have this phrase again, to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies, just like we saw in verse 71, that we would be saved from the hand of all who hate us. Again, speaking not to the necessary, the quality of the enemy, but the reality that no matter the grip that the enemy has on us, that Jesus, and Jesus alone is capable to deliver and to save. And that we need Jesus to save us from the hand of our enemies. So he transforms our position from a position of weakness to a position of deliverance, deliveredness, deliverance. Our position, our affections, he transforms our affections. Look at verse 74 with me. From the hand of our enemies that we being rescued might serve him without, what? Fear. You know, the Old Testament has a lot to say about fearing Yahweh, fearing God. When the Old Testament cries out for Israel to fear them and, and to pursue wisdom, and, and the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, it's not to cower and to panic. Can you remember, I don't, you know, if you're from Lake County, we don't hear the tornado sirens too often, do we? I mean, as outside of 11 a.m. on Wednesday. 
right? And, and then we just ignore them. Um, I was over at that Starbucks with Pastor Tim and Pastor Kent and Pastor Mike when they first opened it up uh, over right on 306. And there is, just so you know, at 11 o'clock on Wednesday, there is, a, there is one of those sirens right in front of that Starbucks. And for the next five minutes, we, we basically, we're four, three big, big guys. I'm kind of a puny little pipsqueak. But, but four of us holding our ears, right? Just sitting there. We couldn't talk. We just had to hold our ears, right? But we just ignored it. It was annoying. Deafening. But can you remember the last time you heard the siren go off? I can. I was at this church in the youth group room. It was a Wednesday night or Sunday night, something. And it went off. What did we do? We didn't just ignore it. Right, everybody checked their phones and then they started getting these, these government alerts. Take cover. You got the siren blazing. Everybody's like, where are my kids? Right? Where's the basement in the church? Hint, there is none. Right? <laughs> but you're alert and you're scared and you kind of panic a little bit. Because you can't, it was dark, you can't, and you're inside, you can't, if the siren's going off, you think, man, that thing could be right outside, I have no clue where it is, but I know that it's somewhere and it's coming. That's terrifying, isn't it? It's more terrifying than actually seeing it, because you don't even know when to duck and to cover. That's not the kind of fear that God asks his people to have of him. But you know what? It turned into that for them. Because that's exactly the sense. He says, you will no longer have to serve me out of fear. So then we have to ask ourselves the question, how did they get themselves into this situation that they would have to serve God, that they were serving God in fear. Well, perhaps it was because enemies were surrounding Israel time and time again. And that's true. And that could be terrifying for those who want to force you to, to, to worship pagans instead of worship the true and one God. But God had time and time and time again demonstrated that he was more powerful than any and all of their, their enemies, hadn't he? I mean, take the Exodus, for example. Take the most powerful nation on the face of the planet, Egypt, at the time. And when God said, let my people go, his people were let go. Red Sea in the way? No problem. Army pursuing you? No problem. Red Sea, swallow them up. God had demonstrated his ability and his faithfulness. So then we have to ask ourselves, okay, Israel, why are you serving them out of fear? Why are you serving him out of fear? I look at the long list of blatant failures and rejection. And it is no wonder 
that when they approached God, they were terrified of him. It is no wonder. And sometimes, you know, we can get that way, can't we? We may not be terrified of, of God in the sense, perhaps, of, of looking back at a, at, a, at a city and being turned into a pillar of salt or touching the altar when we shouldn't have and being consumed. But I, I'm afraid that sometimes I worship God out of duty rather than devotion. Out of obligation rather than love. My friends, the beautiful thing that God is doing through his promise is he is transforming our hearts. He is transforming our affections. He is transforming our positions so that we worship God in devotion rather than in duty. And so he transforms our affections. He transforms our heart. Look at verse 75 with me. In holiness and in righteousness, we are rescued, we serve, we worship him. And we do so in holiness, verse 75, and righteousness before him all our days. You know, it is an, it is an absolute Mark it down. Are you ready? It is an absolute impossibility to worship the God of heaven in holiness and in righteousness without being a person that has had a heart transformation in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't do it. You cannot approach, you cannot be holy like the holy God of heaven without him transforming your heart. And your righteousness outside of Jesus Christ is not enough for the righteousness that is required by the holy God of heaven. So he has to transform our heart. You know, Jeremiah reminds us that our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked when we are outside of Jesus Christ. But he gives us a new heart. Paul calls it a new creation, doesn't he? Ezekiel tells us that we are to look forward to this new heart that will come. Romans tells us about the deceitful wickedness of our hearts outside of Jesus Christ, of the blindness, of the darkness, of the separation and the alienation from God. And so we need this transforming work. We don't deserve it, do we? It's a transforming work that's in mercy. We didn't have enough to bring for him to transform. We need him to do all the work so that we can worship him in holiness and in righteousness. And so we've seen that God's mercy is a mercy of promise. That God's mercy is a mercy of transformation, a promise of transformation. And lastly, this morning, God's mercy is a promise that reveals the Savior. And it's a glorious revelation. 
in verse 76 through 79. Let's read those things together, and we'll close this morning. And you, child, will be called the most uh, will be called the prophet of the Most High. So, in my remember, we, we've you're you're borrowing my theological imagination for a moment, and and we have Zacharias, and and he's in my imagination, okay, holding John the Baptist. If not, he's probably laying down, you know. If, if he's like a first, and he is a first-time dad, you know, and so he doesn't want to drop his kid. But he's, he's got John the Baptist. Right? And he's saying, you, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. So you, John the Baptist, will be called the prophet. But you know what is interesting about the prophet? The prophet of John the Baptist, the, the, the prophets of, of old, they were always always pointing to something greater weren't they and that's that's no different here you know because if you if you go back and you take the time to read about John the Baptist's birth right we understand that it is a miraculous birth elizabeth and zacharias were well advanced in years outside the years of childbearing and furthermore, Elizabeth, Elizabeth was barren. She could not have children. And so this is a, this is a miraculous conception. But that's where the parallel ends to Jesus, the Emmanuel, to the Savior of the world. John is the prophet proclaiming that Jesus is the one who is most high. In verse 32, Luke uses that same terminology. Actually, Mary does in her song. There, speaking of the reality that, that, that Jesus is, is the greatest. He is the Christ on the throne reigning forever. He is most high. He is unchallenged and his reign is unending so as amazing as John the Baptist is he is but the forerunner the prophet pointing to the one who is the most high and he is his task as prophet is to remind us that we are in need of the one who is coming. The one who sits on the throne. The one who is the most high. We need him. Why? Verse 77. Because of our sins. Well, let's continue reading. Verse 76. And you, child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give His people the knowledge of salvation, verse 77, by the forgiveness of their sins. They, we, need our sins forgiven. That's our need. In other words, John's task is to say, you need a Savior. You drive around and do Christmas lights. We do. We love to see Christmas lights. 
go to the store, right, sometimes you'll see Jesus is the reason for the, right, see it on yards, lit up in cool old C9 bulbs, right? Love those things. And perhaps maybe some of you put out, Jesus is the reason for the season. And that's true. And that's great. But really, Zacharias goes one step further and says, we need to know the reason for Jesus. We need forgiveness of our sins. It's not just enough to know Jesus. It's not just enough to know about the babe in the manger. But we, personally, each one of us need to, needs, must do something with the sin that confronts us. We need forgiveness of our sins. And that's John's task as a prophet to go before and to say so. Verse 79. Not only do we need forgiveness of our sins, but, but we need Jesus to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. You see, that is the condition outside of Jesus Christ. We are walking around dead before we are born again. We are walking around in the shadow of darkness, in the shadow of death, and sitting in darkness. You don't have to turn there because of time, but Isaiah 59, in fact, I'm not going to even refer, uh, read it, but you can cross-reference there. Isaiah 59 is a, is a beautiful uh, uh, announcement of the fact that Jesus is going to shine on those who sit in darkness, those who are incapable of themselves to do anything about their sin. We need Jesus. And so that brings us to the reality that it is only when we see the full gravity of our sin that we see the unrivaled glory of our Savior. So we see our need for a Savior. And lastly, we see our Savior. Look at verse 76 with me. He is the Lord who is able to forgive sins, verse 77. And what kind of Lord is he? He's not a despot who commands from his throne, but he is a hero who sacrifices himself for his people. He is the lamb that is slain for the forgiveness of sins. And look again at verse 78. He, in his tender mercy, visits us. That's the same word as in verse 68. Visit with a purpose. Visit to save us from our sins. 78 is a beautiful picture. And as alluded to, verse 79, verse 78, uh, both can be found in Isaiah. Let me read verse 78. Speaking of our Savior, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. Isaiah says, 
in chapter 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. My friends, Jesus Christ is the dawning of that glory. And one day, though we don't know it now, one day his light will shine and it will never go dark. He will be on the throne forever and he will reign and all will submit to him. And so my friends, this morning, the question is not can we trust in the babe in the manger? That answer has been solidified from long ago. The question is what will you do? with the babe in the manger who is the coming king of kings. Revelation chapter 21 alludes to Isaiah 60 and thus to Luke 78, Luke chapter 1, verse 78, when John tells us in his vision in the city, speaking of this, the eternal city, and the city will no longer there will be no longer any night. And there will not have a need of light, of lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them. And they will reign forever and ever. And it will have no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God will illumine it. And the lamp is the Lamb. And so what is the reality for those who trust in this Savior? very last words of verse 79 he will guide our feet into the way of peace why do we have peace for those of you who have trusted Jesus as your savior for those of you who look at the babe in the manger as a physical manifestation of the of the long awaited promise of salvation we have peace because the greatest promise ever given was the promise to forgive sins. Later in Luke's gospel, Luke puts it this way. In chapter 22, he says, Jesus took the cup, you know this, after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood that seals it that seals the promise that seals the forever peace that you and I have through Jesus Christ the promise is guaranteed at a tremendous cost the life of the babe in the manger the promised one the king of kings he is the one who knows peace and gives peace to us so as we ask the question this morning, how can we be sure that Jesus can save, that, that he can really do what, what we're told he can do? It's because God gives us a promise that we didn't deserve. He gives us a promise out of mercy. He gives us a promise that transforms us. And he gives us a promise, promise that reveals our Savior. 
In closing, one of my favorite Christmas traditions is to watch the Charles Dickens classic, A Christmas Carol. And one of my favorite dialogues, there's a few, is between Marley and Scrooge. And Marley bursts into Scrooge's dark bachelor pad and he tries to convince Scrooge that he is real. And so that's where we pick up, pick up in the dialogue. He, Marley says, you don't believe in me. And Scrooge says, I don't. What evidence would you have of my reality beyond that of your senses? Asks Marley. And Scrooge says, I don't know. Why do you doubt your senses? Asks Marley. Because, says Scrooge, a little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them lie. You may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of underdone potato. There's more gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. Scrooge, I think, illustrates the point beautifully that our senses can lie to us. They can deceive us. They can be easily affected by the triumphs or the turmoils of the day. They're real. And our hurt is real and our trials are deep. But my friends... God's promise remains. And what God says will always come true. And so, no matter what situation you find yourself in this morning, it can be as trivial as Scrooge with an un undercooked bit of potato. Or it can be as life-altering as losing a loved one. And our affections, our senses, will go into turmoil and will go into to haywire sometimes because life is chaos. But know that God's abiding words remain and they are coming true in Jesus Christ. And that's Zacharias's point. And that's the beautiful thing for us to take home today. That God is working all things according to his word. Father, this morning We're so thankful for the tremendous truths that we have in your word. And we are so thankful that we are people that did not deserve these truths. We are people that should hide even thinking about these truths in terror 
but in your mercy you have given them to us. And you are doing a transforming work through these truths in our hearts. And that transforming work testifies to the reality that your word is even true today. Father, we're so thankful for the physical, historical, relational manifestation of your son to us. And we're so thankful that no matter what situations come our way, you have given us the strength, the grace, and you have given us an an abundance of mercy to be faithful, to persevere, to love you, to proclaim you, to say no to our flesh, to say yes to the Spirit, to read your word, to pray, and to be faithful, looking up for you to come again and reign and be King of kings and Lord of lords. And until you come and sit on your throne in a visible And forever fashion, we pray that we would be faithful. And no matter what, trials and tribulations are about us. We would take comfort in that your words are coming true. And that you have given them to us. In Jesus' name we pray.